You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey exploring the Rose City's most famous architectural and cultural landmarks, its forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populated them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've been exploring Portland's built environment for the past 20 years as a journalist and critic covering the city's architecture, arts, politics, and more. excited to share what I've learned and to learn along with you as we talk to a spectrum of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. Today we're going to talk about a house in northwest Portland. It's in the American four-square style, two stories with an attic above and a large covered front porch below. Inside the rooms are a bit small, but there's some lovely details from the natural wood trim to a decorative window or two, including a beautiful second floor one with a diamond pattern. My friend Eric Wheeler, who's an architectural historian and leads Positively Portland walking tours, described this house's architecture to me in this way. Quote, two-story cube with a bell-cast hip roof, evenly spaced second-story windows and offset entry. Those features are classic to the American four-square style. The projecting hip-proof central dormer is unusual, but you definitely have an American Foursquare here, he said. Yet to be honest, it's not the house so much as its occupants that are the real focus here. For while it has a street address on 22nd Place near Burnside, this is known as the Hazel Hall House, in honor of the acclaimed poet Hazel Hall, who lived here in the teens and 20s. You may not know the name Hazel Hall today, and honestly, until a few years ago, I didn't either. But she has been called the Emily Dickinson of the West. Perhaps to some degree her name has been forgotten, but Hazel Hall and her poems do continue to inspire. Just last year, for example, composer Matthew Svoboda created a work of classical music and dance called The Room Upstairs. We're going to hear a snippet of that piece a little later, but first I'm going to read you the text from a plaque outside the Hazel Hall house, and I think it was provided by the Oregon Cultural Heritage Commission, but it was also taken from a collection of her poems. Here goes. Hazel Hall, one of Portland's finest poets, resided in this house from 1918 until her death in 1924. Her first two collections of poems, Curtains from 1921 and Walkers from 1923, joined in time and surpassed in quality a flurry of publications by Oregon writers that ushered the state onto the national literary stage during the 1920s. Hall was born in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1886, Her family came to Portland in 1888. They moved often in the following years, staying for the most part within this neighborhood of northwest Portland. An attack of scarlet fever at the age of 12 left Hall wheelchair-bound, and for the remainder of her life she rarely left home. To an English Sparrow, her first published poem, appeared in the Boston Transcript in 1916, the year her father died. Two years later, with her sister Ruth and their mother, May, Hazel Hall moved to this address, number 52 on what was then Lucretia Place. Here she would stitch the exquisite embroidery and fine garments whose sale to the fashionable ladies from the heights above was her contribution to the family income. Here also, resting her eyes and hands from the tedium of her needlework, Hall would watch the world through the diamond panes facing the street on the second floor. And there, interweaving her work and her watching, she fashioned her poems. As Hazel Hall's health began to fail, Her poetic career soared. Critics nationally lauded her work and compared it with that of Sarah Teasdale and Emily Dickinson. Hazel's final collection, Cry of Time from 1928, demonstrated her continuing creative growth. Her sister Ruth actually lived on in the family home until her own death in 1974. So today we're going to talk first with John Witte, a poet and emeritus literature professor at the University of Oregon who edited a collection of Hazel Hall's poems. On this show, we try and look at buildings and places from both an old and new perspective, and it turns out the people living in Hazel Hall's house now, or half of it since it's actually a duplex, are just as creative and interesting as Hazel herself. That would be Trish and Neil Langman, a husband and wife team of faction textile designers whose list of clients is a who's who of iconic brands, including Ralph Lauren, Calvin Klein, and Nike, among many others. I visited Trish and Neil at the Hazel Hall house a few weeks ago, 
And I think it's a wonderful tribute to a literary mind like Hazel's that these two creative minds and their kids are living in this house and keeping the creative flame alive. But before we begin with the interviews, I'd like to read two brief poems from Hazel Hall. The first one is called Frames. Brown windowsill, you hold all of my skies, and I know of springing year and fall, and everything of earth that greets my eyes. Brown windowsill, how can you hold it all? Gray walls, my days are bound within your hold, cast there and lost like pebbles in a sea, and all my thought is squared to fit your mold. Gray wall, how mighty is your masonry. And this poem of Hazel's is called Footsteps. They pass so close, the people on the street, footfall, footfall. I know them from their footsteps pulsing beat, footfall, footfall. The tripping, lingering, and the heavy feet, I hear them call. I am the dance of youth, and life is fair, footfall, footfall. I am a dream, divinely unaware, footfall, footfall. I am the burden of an old despair, footfall. On a surface level, as you've heard, Hazel Paul's poems can seem sad or melancholy. They express her loneliness, her yearning to be free from her wheelchair and out in the world. You hear the jealousy in that poem. But they also transcend those constraints of architecture and of her own legs, really, through the beauty of her prose and the deep feeling behind it. They express a wonder that shows us that the limitations on Hazel Hall became the prism through which she made great literature. Hazel Hall may have been confined to a wheelchair or to that house, but her poems made it across continents and oceans and continued to resonate across generations. But even if Hazel hadn't become famous, and even if her poems had been forgotten for good, hers would still be a story of how creativity, be it literature or art or music or designing video games for that matter, can be a source of solace. You feel that reading Hazel Hall's poems, and so that solace is passed on to us. Thanks, Hazel. Woody is a poet and editor as well as a senior instructor emeritus at the University of Oregon. His poems have appeared in publications such as The New Yorker, Paris Review, Kenyon Review, and American Poetry Review, and in numerous anthologies, among them the Norton Introduction to Literature. His books include the poetry collection Second Nature, published in 2008, The Hurtling, from 2004, and Loving the Dazed, published in 1978. He is also the editor of numerous collections of poetry, most notably for our purposes, The Collected Poems of Hazel Hall, published by OSU Press in 2000. Other collections he's edited include 2084, Looking Beyond Orwell, and Warnings, an anthology on the nuclear peril, both published in 1984, as well as Pioneer Letters, The Letter as Literature from 1983. John, thanks very much for joining us on In Search of Portland. Glad to be here, Brian. I wonder if you could talk a little bit first about your your initial encounter with Hazel Hall personally and, and where it fell in your own life. Well, I was living in Vermont and um, and uh, feeling um, uh, feeling isolated, actually, uh, there as a writer and um, wishing for more um, community of writers. So uh-huh. seeking out a graduate program and um, winding up uh, selecting the University of Oregon. Um, while I was an undergraduate, I um, I had started a literary magazine, and um, and it really got into my blood. Uh, I really enjoyed it. So when I got to the University of Oregon, I volunteered at Northwest Review, um, uh, which was the literary um, uh, journal uh, published by uh, the English department. Uh-huh. And at the time, um, the editor uh, was in the process of assembling an anthology of Northwest writers. Coming from the East Coast, uh, these were people who I had uh, really not been familiar with. Uh, uh-huh. H.O. Davis, uh, Vardis Fisher, um, and uh, Hazel Hall, uh, someone who was completely uh, new to me. And I read her work and was... Um, floored, uh, frankly. I was um, astonished how um, just how gorgeous, how, um, how 
powerful, how universal, how completely unknown um, she was, not just to me, but I think to most people. So I helped out with that anthology and uh-huh. um, and uh, got to to become familiar with Hazel Hall's work and discovered that, uh, sadly, her work had been out of print for um, 60 years. Uh. And um, so decided to do something about that. Yeah. I wonder if you could sort of talk a little bit about her style for us. Uh, obviously, poetry can take uh, any number of different forms. Uh, you know, a layperson might say, well, it rhymes or it doesn't. Uh, but, you know, there's everything right. from limericks to haiku. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I know she's been compared, for example, to Emily Dickinson. But how might you dissect her style or what you're seeing, what she's doing? As a fellow poet, what do you, yeah, what do you see yeah. the tools she's employing? <clears throat> well, one of the things remarkable about Hazel Hall is that um, she's not easy to uh, pigeonhole uh, in that way. I guess you might describe her as, as kind of a transitional um, writer, where, like a lot of writers in the 20s, um, she was um, looking back to earlier forms, rhymed forms, sonnets or sonnet-like uh, forms. Uh-huh. But she was also moving ahead and... Um, and much of her verse is uh, free, free verse. Some of it um, kind of shockingly uh, free, particularly for that uh, for that time. Huh. Um, so, um, so she she was very kind of ambidextrous. She was capable of writing in a lot of different uh, forms. She was, um, as far as a formal education, she had almost none. Uh-huh. Um, uh, fifth grade. Um, is is what biographers um, imagine. Uh, she stopped school because, as as your listeners may know, she was um, stricken with um, a, a number of of um, of afflictions. Um, not a lot is known. Uh, she's a very private person, but um, contracted scarlet fever, probably suffered a fall, and as a consequence, was um, confined to a wheelchair mm-hmm. for the rest of her life. So her learning, uh, her reading of other poets, for example, would have been um, completely um, ad hoc, uh, what she could lay her hands on. Yeah. Um, she had very little contact with other writers. Um, so um, a, a, a sort of genius uh, is how I would describe her. Yeah, yeah. And you sort of started to touch upon this a little bit, but I wonder if you could put her in the context of the 1920s and, and what was happening maybe here in Oregon or more broadly, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, do you feel like this was a time when when she was in any way part of a, a like a group of writers who were beginning to achieve national attention, like you talked about that anthology that you had worked on? Like, uh, was, I, was she in, a way, in any way part of a kind of generation? Uh, no. Um, huh. Not at all. Um, she was... Um, uh, almost absolutely isolated. Her, her work found publication um, gradually, of course, at first. Um, her first poem um, was published when she was 35 years old wow. and uh, had only three years to live. So all of her work uh, was written in that three-year period. Uh. And as she um, uh, was published, as she made um, some, uh, some um, uh, connections with uh, editors with publishers. Um, she, she she learned more. She she, um, but I don't think ever really felt uh, that kind of connection that you're uh, asking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But were there other Oregon writers who maybe if they didn't know each other, with were the 1920s a time when when more writers from this region were starting to achieve na- national recognition, or was she alone in that way too? She was alone among poets, as far as I know. There were certain writers, but they really came later, H.L. Davis in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. So, so no, there was really not uh, a literary scene uh, to speak of in Oregon. Interesting. I wanted to ask you, since we've got you on the phone, about kind of your observations uh, about the evolution of poetry's place in our culture today. And obviously, I mean, in part by that, that we have more distractions than ever with, you know, social media and smartphones and other types of technology. But I also think there's something about the the economy of poetry that can work sometimes within 
these communication forms. And uh, I feel like people still turn to poetry for inspiration or solace. And, uh, you know, just today, for example, I happened to be on Twitter and see a tweet from one of the members of Congress that has been threatened by the president and told to go back to where she came from, yeah. even though she came from the United States. Yeah. And so this this member of Congress quoted the great poet Maya Angelou. Uh, she quoted uh, Angelou's writing, you may shoot me with your words, you may cut me with your eyes, you may kill me with your hatefulness, but still like air, I'll rise. Uh, and but, so, you know, what do you think about, yeah. you know, what do you, when you talk to your students uh, and, and that sort of thing, or to other people in the community about what you do, what do you, what do you think about, you know, how poetry has evolved with our culture? Well, poetry is, is um, in, a, in a very exciting place right now. Um, huh. But it's in, and I should say, it's in a transition. Um, the, um, the poets who I grew up with, um, um, Ezra Pound, Robert Lowell, um, Elizabeth Bishop, um, are really not being read, and they're not—they're not providing what people need uh-huh. now. And so, um, instead, um, uh, poets are responding uh, to, um, as as they always have and must, they respond to the immediate needs of the society, and those needs. Uh, right now, um, as in so many other fields, really revolve around identity and identity politics, uh, identity art forms, um, and and uh, and so on. And um, Maya Angelou is really a leader in that. Uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, the evolution of poetry in that direction. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a very exciting, very confusing time uh, in poetry. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, a powerful um, an inspirational uh, influx from spoken word and hip hop and rap. Um, so poems are becoming um, much more uh, um, spoken. They're in in everyday spoken language. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're much more immediate, and you know much less um, oh abstract or um, even even flowery, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. First of all, I love the idea that you can find something transcendent in a Kendrick Lamar hip-hop line, but then also go back to a Wordsworth and sort of see that things have changed, but also sort of um, appreciate the kind of floral nature of, of earlier poetry precisely because it doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, also, though, I wanted to ask you, uh, um, are there by any chance any sort of hazel halls of today that that come to mind for you? I don't mean people who have her same style, but are there any poets working today who, who come to mind for you, be they from Oregon or for anywhere else, that, that you feel like um, are sort of um, making you feel encouraged uh, with their kind of blend of youth and talent? Or, or middle-aged people that are yeah, exciting you? Yeah. Well, there, there are a remarkable number of, um, of writers. <clears throat> are there people like Hazel Hall? I would say no, not that I know of. Um, they're... Um, the degree of um, of isolation um, that uh, Hazel Hall experienced, I, I think, is um, is is very very unusual, and um, uh, and and especially given um, the avenues opened by social media, mm-hmm. um, uh, I don't I don't know that anyone again will 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 suffer that kind of uh, complete isolation. An interesting question becomes why now, you know, why after, oh, this is now 75 years, um, is there some, a, a bit of a resurgence of interest? In, mm-hmm. uh, in Hazel Hall, um, she's almost trending. She's clearly saying something, though her experience was so unique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, she's saying something that we, we need to hear uh, today. Clues about this, um, you know, I think we can find in um, some of the judgments of um, of uh, writers like uh, Sandra McPherson, um, who I'm looking at the back of the book now, who said um, Hazel Hall's poems are an essential part of learning how to speak as a unique woman. Um, she was an early feminist, and mm-hmm. um, and she conveyed uh, through her poems the um, Kind of dark, 
undertones um, of the lives of working women in the in the early part of the century. This this is one of the um, you know the powerful contributions to our culture that uh, Hazel Hall more or less unknowingly made. Um, yeah. She certainly had no idea of herself as a as a feminist. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, it strikes me that, uh, you know, we're here kind of openly wondering about why there may be a little bit of a Hazel Hall resurgence today happening. And I think we've sort of answered our own question in a certain respect that even though there are a lot of kind of draconian things happening these days and a feeling like there's been a kind of regression happening on so many social levels, at the same time, there's been a kind of awakening in, uh, you know, seen in things like the the Me Too movement or, or, or sure. so forth, that uh, that uh, uh, it, there's a kind of moment where where women are taking a, a a greater leadership in our in our culture and in our society, or at least hopefully so. Sure, sure. Um, we need that to happen yeah. um, to save us. Uh, yeah. um, and so, you know, maybe there's something about Hazel Hall's poetry that is, even though often melancholy, can be inspiring as well to people today. Melancholic for good reason. I mean, um, you know, someone who who um, was a working woman um, uh, living in a single room, isolated, um, uh, trying to make um, a little bit of income for her family after her father passed away. Um, so, you know, um, responsibility, taking on um, responsibilities that women have so frequently uh, done. Mm-hmm. Um, Another interesting phenomenon, I think, is in in times like this, uh, the Me Too movement and so on. Uh, once once the movement begins to mature, uh, after its initial kind of euphoric uh, state, mm-hmm. and and it, it settles into to to, um, you know, to really meaningful work. One of the things that happens, I think, is that people, in this case, women, um, begin to look around and and notice people. Um, who we may have overlooked, people in the past, um, who we may have misunderstood or underappreciated. And um, I think that could be the case here, too. Yeah, I love that idea. You know, I I love uh, turning on uh, my TV and watching the Criterion channel uh, so I can watch all these great old movies by filmmakers who weren't quite appreciated the first time around. And I seem to uh, have bought a fair amount of books uh, in the past few years published by the New York Review of Books, and they're all books great books that had gone out of print at some point. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's great that we can kind of, uh, you know, mine the past and, and revisit some of these uh, great artists. Yes, yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for talking with us. Uh, what a wonderful conversation, and we really appreciate your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Brian. Thank you. Support for this podcast and for X-Ray comes from Mutual Materials, providing masonry and hardscape products to architects, designers, and homeowners. Whether it's brick, block, pavers, retaining walls, or stone veneer, Mutual Materials helps you create long-lasting indoor and outdoor spaces. Visit Mutual Materials' new showroom in Northwest Portland or one of its 18 locations across the Pacific Northwest. To find more information, ideas, and project photos, visit mutualmaterials.com. Mutual Materials building beauty that lasts. Trisha and Neil Langman are here. They've spent nearly two decades working in fashion with a focus on textiles, print, and patterns. Both raised in London with many years in New York City before coming to Portland a little over a decade ago, they have designed for their own brand, Spoogee, as well as a who's who of fashion and apparel brands, including Ralph Lauren, Calvin Klein, Halston, Donna Karen, Nicole Miller, Anthropology, Banana Republic, and Nike. Jeez, guys. Uh, their work has been featured at the Costume Institute of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City and a hand-painted designer gown for Celine Dion at her performance for the Grammy Awards. Tricia is also a professor at the Portland Fashion Institute, and for the last year, she's worked as a United Nations representative and researcher for the Argentinian NGO Eco por Nosotros, organizing panel discussions around sustainability, poverty, and empowering indigenous peoples around the world to preserve their traditional textile cultures. In her ancestral homeland of Ghana, West Africa, Trish consults for the Ghana Fashion Board, and before coming to New York, Neil has additionally worked in Italy and France as an art director. 
Trisha Neal, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Hey, good to, good to, good to, good to, be, good to here. be here. <laughs> I'd like to begin by asking you both about coming to Portland, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a little over a decade ago um, uh, from New York City and then from the UK before that. And, and uh, talking with you earlier, if I'm not mistaken, it wasn't honestly the city so much that was attracting you so much as like the nature surrounding it. Like I I would think of you talking about the Oregon coast. And uh, so I wondered if you could just tell us about coming to Portland and, and obviously you formed some impressions as you got here too, but um, tell us maybe to rephrase that, if you could just tell us about coming to Oregon and, and the yeah. desire there. Well, our first you know thing we really kind of heard about Portland was we had some people used to come out and see our collection in New York mm-hmm. and they always used to come down to our studio in DeBrosa Street. Yeah. And they were from Columbia Sportswear and Nike. Mm-hmm. So they always told us about, you know, you should get yourself out to Portland. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're always kind of slow at change. Aren't yeah. we? So about, you know, about 10 years later, I actually bought the collection out. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first thing I did after showing the collection was just headed to the coast. Because um, I'd heard, you know, it looked like kind of all those kind of monumental structures out there seemed sounded appealing to me. Mm-hmm. And I got there and it reminded me in a weird way of where I grew up in England, which is Cornwall and Devon. Yes. And on a like, a, you know, much, that's a much on a smaller scale. But the expanse of it just reminded me a bit of home mm-hmm. and just kind of the air. And so I came back and spoke to Trish and just said... Uh, you wanted to leave, move I, here? Yeah, it was kind of a whim to move here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was completely opposite, you know, in terms of our work, it was a terrible move. We shouldn't really have done it. Uh-huh. But I just said, no, it's... Change is good. So I mean, we... I hadn't even seen Portland um, when, I, <laughs> when we moved here. Um, I was heading towards LA because I wanted to get out of New York and the whole rat, you know, rat race of you know just working and working and sort of never seeing any nature. Um, but not like our lifestyle was really the rat race. No, it wasn't. But it was still, you know, we just I just had a baby. It's just it was nice. I just wanted nature and mm-hmm. you know a different something different. So mm-hmm. you know, it was I was willing to take the risk. I love that. I love that. I mean, it's it's funny for me to hear that in a way because I made almost the opposite trek. Uh, I grew up in Oregon and at age 18 enrolled sight and seeing at New York University and moved to New York City from my small farm town. Uh, and it was sort of the major fork in the road moment of my life. And, and it was kind of the best thing I ever did, but it still led me back to Oregon. And I think that landscape was really part of the story. You know, I miss seeing the horizon and, and having my feet on grass or on sand. And and uh, it's funny the the kind of relationship we all kind of seek a kind of balance between the the kind of cultural vibrance and energy of city life, but feeling a kind of need to be recharged by uh, my doc. My doctor actually calls it vitamin N. You know, by nature. Uh, so it's, yeah, no, it's true. It's true. I mean, it certainly is. You know, it's it's if it's in your blood, you know, you need that balance. I think. And uh, like New York was, I mean, I think New York's an amazing city. I mean, I still, you know, have a lot of love for it. It's just that... It has a great energy, yeah. you know, creatively. We, mm-hmm. used, we yeah. always used to say when you arrive in New York, it felt like somebody plugged you in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, which is, and, and also people help each other, which is great. I mean, I remember like when I first arrived there, you know, within, I think, 24 hours, I'd been invited to a couple of places, had offers of um, a job opportunity and that was just yeah it's just like opportunity yeah. after opportunity mm-hmm. just like snowballs it's, yeah it's, it's almost because there's so many people out of place that people all kind of just lend a hand to each other which is mm-hmm. nice mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. well with that in mind i wonder if you could talk uh, before we get to hazel hall in the house i wonder if you could talk a little bit about your careers and some of the inspirations you've drawn from and and uh trish if i'm not mistaken you for natural reasons are more kind of inspired or drawn from your own heritage, which is probably the kind of beautiful printmaking or, or pattern making capital of the world in some ways. Uh, and Neil, I remember when, when I got talking with you earlier, you were talking about the kind of journeys you go on wandering around the streets of Portland or New York, taking pictures and stuff. And so the fact that you so often have, have worked together and yet have these I, and I also don't want to reduce either of you to just that thing that I described either. But I wonder if you could both just talk a little bit about the way you work and what you draw from and how you're alike and how you're different as designers. Um, well, I mean, I think we complement each other. Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, I like hand done and quite delicate things to work with. Um, and whenever we showed our collection, everyone would say there's two separate things, but they seem to work yeah. really well together you know because i kind of like deconstruction yeah <laughs> I, I like to sort of mess things up uh-huh. yeah 
Like in life too. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I love, you know, watery, splashy watercolour and playing with fabric and textural things that go with fabric. But, you know, there are two intersections, you know. I like yeah. deconstruction in terms of Japanese wabasabi True. kind of things. Uh, but not, um, you know, not to your extent where you're, you like decay. <laughs> yeah, like even in my photographs. I mean, I, I went to Lisbon. Yeah, and, beautiful city. Yeah, oh, yeah. And I just and I just photographed the urban decay of the yeah, city. Yeah, it's like you would have thought we were in, I don't know. Yeah, in fact, all my first visit to Portland was just graffiti and decay. I yeah, think. you know, for, for me, um, I love, my inspiration does come, you know, I grew up with pattern and my auntie's wearing loads of amazing prints and, you know, I actually thought I was going to study illustration first of all, but then um, I think it was a teacher went through my sketchbook and thought, you've got a really good sense of colour, maybe you should try textiles, and I hadn't really thought about it. And um, after that, you know, um, I decided to apply to go and study textiles, and after that, you know, everything's history, you know, I just went travelling, it sort of took me everywhere, textiles, something that I wouldn't have thought, you know, mm -hmm. um, about didn't, didn't you got taught when you were doing illustration? Wasn't it a Stan from Marvel? Stan, Stan Lee. Yeah, Stan yeah, Lee? Yeah, 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 I think. Well, yeah, I well, I used to go to Cartoon Workshop, and yeah. I met Stan Lee. Came in one day. That's when he so. had to have lots of jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> came in one day, yeah. and you know, yeah, he was looking at all my cartoons because I used to um, write and illustrate for a fanzine mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. I was younger. So, um, yeah, so I was really heavily into being an illustrator. But then, you know, life. And take you on a different but it's structure. still there in your work yeah i think i can see it in yeah. trisha's work it's definitely there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, I, and i said you know for me photography was kind of a good parallel just because i like um just combining different elements together and i think uh, especially for when you're doing prints for for like active things like that um mm -hmm. it just just to take an image and break it up and um you know almost like put it back together backwards yeah um it was kind of a fun thing to do and it's just it keeps you interested as well like I was always, you know, because to do textiles for too long, it becomes the same old if you're not careful. But if yeah. you if you actually find a way of kind of taking something you did earlier, then destroying it and putting it back together, uh -huh. it creates more interest in, and that's how I kept myself interested in doing it. I think. Yeah. And yeah. photography, you know, the urban decay of cities, I think, is, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's almost like the, it's something that's sort of underneath the underbelly. Uh -huh. It's always something that appeals to me. And if you're talking about patterns and seeking them out yeah. in yeah. urban yeah. settings, um, uh, it reminds me, it's actually something that I've done in my own amateur photography. And I went, I remember the one time I was reviewed by a newspaper for like a gallery show, the reviewer used this phrase that I would imagine applies to your work as well, what he called localized scrutiny, that if you kind of zero in or kind of zoom in on a, on a, you know, the creases on a building or yeah. like these individual textural details that that you can sort of abstract them and and make them something transform them, yeah, which is part yeah, of what you you're talking about. You see pattern in everything. Yeah, I see pattern in everything, and <laughs> also this is I, not a joke. It'll probably take me to a psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah, but the but in nature, you know, also decay in nature. I like, you know, like I photographed. Um, it was just in the centre of Portland, the northwest, but it was actually at the end of summer where the flowers start to fade. Mm -hmm. That's the best time to take pictures because they're, you know, <laughs> and they're dying. And well, no, they just it's just they're more interesting. They've got more texture, and they, mm -hmm. you know, it's like. Mm -hmm. you know, I, you know, the idea of a, a glowing rose doesn't really appeal to me. Yeah. But the idea of like a, you know, when it wilts and when it's like, you know, sort of the leaves start to kind of crunch up and it's, uh -huh. it's more interesting then. Or maybe a rose for some people when it, it still has that bloom, but it's just gone a bit. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like uh, the up, the gardens, you know, up in um, the rose garden. Yeah. Yeah. September's a great time to yeah, go you there. You photographed all the ones decaying. I did. You did. And the on the floor, the petals. Falling. And I had a, <laughs> a fanboy moment of sorts with you when we were talking at your house a few weeks ago, Neil. That uh, that you were involved uh, uh, in creating a pattern for the great Roger Federer, uh, the the greatest tennis player uh, of all time. Uh, so say some. I know you guys are Rafa fans, so right. you, you you'd have a pretty yeah. legitimate argument. Uh, <laughs> as well yeah i mean it's like you know you sell you actually sell the design and then you never know where it's going to end up that's uh -huh. the thing and it's like sometimes you know you you recognize them sometimes you don't sometimes uh -huh. it's best not to even yeah, see it again because yeah, what they've done to it the main thing is is to i think it's just to be inspired by what you create uh -huh. because it's like you know i've noticed with um a lot of the patterns i've done you they turn up in all walks you know i, I was watching um 
was it Turner Classic Movies? And, oh, yeah, and one of my prints is it used as a backdrop in there. Ah. Yeah. And that, I, I can't even remember who I sold it to. But Yeah, it, you just see somebody down the street and think, oh, God, they've yeah. got my print on. <laughs> so they walking. just turn up everywhere in all <laughs> yeah. walks of life. It's mm-hmm, quite funny. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's sometimes you envision it used completely differently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's just best to be happy with what you create. I think. Yeah, yeah. So, otherwise, do your own collection, and that's yeah. the way to go, I think. I sense in in what you guys do a a, a kind of balance that that so many people creatively seek uh, in the sense of yes you're doing client driven work to pay the bills and working with um, companies and that sort of thing but you want to find a way to sort of do your own thing or to to give yourself the freedom to go on your own creative explorations which may not have a purpose when you first sort of capture them but um, maybe do so later. And so I, I think that balances seems, seems nice. Yeah. I mean, a good, a good story of like, you know, just things that happen was like when we worked on the Ralph Lauren project in New York Yeah, and they'd called us up actually to do all these, um, pieces for the catwalk. Mm-hmm. And I think when I actually answered the phone and just said, it sounded says- like a big hassle. So I just hung up on them. <laughs> so I and, had to call them back. Yeah, so Trish, Trish phoned <laughs> them I back. say yes to every project. Uh-huh. And I, tend uh-huh. to say, I tend to say no. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I called them back and said, no, we'll take it. We'll yeah. take that project. Even though we had no idea how we were going to do it. Yeah. We didn't actually have a studio. No, it was point. before our studio, wasn't it? Yeah. So, you know, we had to take the door off the yeah. We literally <laughs> took a, a big door off its hinge. <laughs> uh-huh. in the, like a room like this with a giant table in it uh-huh. and um and then we just started didn't we yeah and you know just we did all these designs with our cat and we we had like three days to do five yeah ten dresses crazy. or something i mean trish was actually sleeping under the table yeah. while i was working <laughs> and we were like yeah yeah we, we're gonna get it done you know and, <laughs> like and, we had no idea how and our cat was in the house and ran across one of the dresses just as it before it was finished uh-huh. and because of he did that he completely ruined the pattern so we had to put it through the washing machine but uh-huh. because for that reason it created a new texture to the fabric, which we would never have yeah, found so, out. So that accident caused us to actually have a yeah, it looked like even better. yeah, it looked like suede, and they said, "Oh, yeah, they, Ralph loved it." You know, yeah. it's like the oh, wow. idea of it. So, yeah, happy accidents. Yeah, <laughs> kitty. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so, yeah. so that, things like that are always kind of you just never know what can happen. Really, I love it. I love it. Let me ask you about starting to become aware of Hazel Hall and and sort of realizing that you had some ways just sort of accidentally come across um, having this this shared dwelling with her. And I wonder if you could just sort of talk about how you started to the the, the kind of unfolding of of kind of this realization and 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 how she started to, in a sense, maybe as a ghost or whatever, you know, find her way into your lives. Can I first say, like, you know, sometimes you think you're meant to end up somewhere, you know, there's no accidents. Uh-huh. Because we decided, like, kind of on a spur moment, we'll move to Portland. Uh-huh. And um, we literally looked through Craigslist. And I just said to Trish, this thing just popped up, didn't it? Yeah, because we couldn't find anything for ages. And we're like, it's getting close and we haven't yeah. got anywhere to live. And <laughs> we called. And the person said, I only posted that 10 seconds ago. <laughs> and I said, well, we can't look. But um, I've got a friend who is here who might come over and take a look. And he told me it looked studenty and it wasn't it wasn't really that complimentary. Yeah, uh-huh. we just wanted a place where we could have two yeah. working studios to yeah. work in. So, so we said you know, we, t- we we listened to his description. We said it sounds great. Yeah, that's all we wanted. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, um, a little so, bit of decay, right? Yeah. 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 That's exactly what he was saying. He said, oh, it's a little rundown. I said, good. Uh-huh. And he said, well, there's like, you know, it's, we're not I'm not sure about the, how the there's an old tub in the bathroom i said great <laughs> and you know to, to us it all sounded like character yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i felt hazel was calling i tell you yeah yeah <laughs> and you know i think uh um it helps when you've lived in for lack of a better term older cities like uh here on the west coast i think especially if you come from maybe a little bit more of a suburban upbringing you're used to being in new buildings all the time and yeah. and i remember kind of even as a kid in oregon myself kind of going through that process of a first thinking like oh this building's kind of dusty and I don't, I'm not so sure. But then as you learn about materials and, and, you know, the beauty of design, you kind of learn that, that um, sometimes the buildings that have been a little bit more lived in or a little bit more dusty, just like cars, yeah. you know, um, you know, there's no car in existence that I would have over, you know, like an 83 BMW or, or any uh, number of other ones. Uh, yeah. uh, and so, you know, I think, but I think living in sort of cities with more heritage and history and an older building fabric kind of maybe indoctrinate that to you a little bit. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We, when we arrived, it just felt like we'd already been there. Yeah. You know, we often have that feeling about things. Yeah. Cause I remember your niece was visiting and, you know, I said, oh, can you send some pictures? And I thought, yeah, this looks exactly as I'd imagine it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, just, you know, the stairs, the studio, it's perfect. So 
Um, and I had a toddler as well. <laughs> we had a toddler as well, mm-hmm. you know, who was going to join us. So we needed space. Um, it wouldn't have suited everybody. Mm-hmm. But for us, you know, as artists, and there's so few places at that time where we could move and you could have studio space and a place to live and, you know, feel good, you know, in the area. You yeah, know? So yeah. It was perfect. And, you yeah. know, there's even a crossover or a, a meaning point of sorts. Uh, I think we touched upon this before as well, but it's worth noting that... Um, you know, Hazel um, paid, helped pay her family's bills by being a kind of expert um, at sewing and, and making physical garments yeah. for wealthy women. And it's two different kind of centuries of needle and thread. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. Sometimes when I'm sitting in my studio, although I think she was in your studio, but, you know, and I'm, you know, because I do a lot of sewing and embroidery and all sorts of stuff as well as print, you know. And I kind of think about the fact that she did sort of something similar, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an interesting that we ended up there. I always think, God, oh, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. There's definitely a presence in the house. I mean, you can feel it's, it's you know, it's almost like you can feel, it's almost like a shadow that just passes. I, mm-hmm. turn and, I didn't want to talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but there is, there's something. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, whether it's just energy that remains. Well, our something. son says that he's seen things, but yeah. I don't know about that, but. Yeah, if you're sort of the houses, old houses creak and make noises. It's almost mm-hmm. like they're an entity in themselves. So, you know, the acoustics in the house are really strange. Like you hear um, downstairs in the wrong room and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like if you go to the basement, <laughs> yeah. you can actually hear two floors up. Yeah. Clearly, it's very strange. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it's, it's odd like that. But I guess it's to do with the vents and the, uh, the way the heating system runs and things. And do you think of her, you know, you were talking about the, you know, maybe the presence of a ghost of Hazel, that sort of thing. Like, I'm curious if you guys think of her work and as being kind of melancholy or having that mood, or if you think of it as being in some ways more, more transcending of that, or yeah. how do you think of her work? I mean, I, I think she was transported somewhere else because she had to be, mm-hmm. because, you know, she was trapped in that, in that room. And it's almost like she watched life and it was almost like it was like a television or like a, just like a vision to another world. So she, in her writing, it was almost like she transported herself. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't find her work depressing. I mean, you can, you can read it one way like this, but I found it quite enlightening really because she, she saw this life and this vibrancy around her from whether it was her stitching or whether it was just her viewing people yeah, passing I mean, on the street. The one thing about when you're reading her work, I mean, she doesn't come across as, I don't think she comes across as medically or bitter about her circumstances i mean mm-hmm. you know she was trapped but i still feel like you know seems like ho- hopeful and you know she was interested in what was going out in the outer world so mm-hmm. now I, to me i feel like i agree with you she kind of feels enlightened yeah yeah, yeah. i feel like uh um beautifully told sad tales have yeah. a kind of happiness to them like yeah. you know you guys were living in in england in the 80s um isn't that exactly what a smith song is you know <laughs> Yeah, well, living under yeah. Margaret Thatcher, you know, it's not it's not dissimilar to now, really, yeah. is it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, when you think about what we're all having to experience. Now. Uh-huh. And it's interesting when you talk about, you, you, you express that beautifully of, of the relationship between Hazel and her circumstances and her, her art. It, it makes me think of that kind of age-old idea that, that, um, that constraints are conducive to creativity in certain ways. Like, you know, you, you read and learn Hazel's story and you think, I, I wish you weren't in a wheelchair, or I wish you could have been one of those people walking out on the street uh, that your poems talk about. But well, at the same she time, wouldn't have, she wouldn't yeah, have yeah, she yeah. wouldn't have written, have written those. Well, we talk about that all the time, yeah, we don't do. we? Why is, you know, England was so creative musically? Yeah, we were saying, like, <laughs> what the music that comes out of L.A., yeah. mm-hmm. you know, Sunny Weather produces, I mean, you can say the Red Hot Chili Pepper, you know, it's a little, it's, you know, not that it's all pop or anything, mm-hmm. but it's, but like, there's always been parallels between like Seattle, Portland, and, Eng- and parts of England, just mm-hmm. climate related. How you actually? It's just it's creativity. It's almost like you have gritty. to stay. Yeah, you have to stay inside and create because you're not always outside doing stuff. You know, I don't know. There's yeah. something in there. You and know, and I think it's more than just it's. You know, because English people will come to Portland, and they actually. I think it was once described as. Um, the most English of American cities, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, which I don't know if I completely agree with, because you know, of course, it's it's very different. But there is something about the mood. That, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe finally, uh, I wonder if there are any just Hazel Hall, you know, 
poems or even phrases that that you've responded to over time that that kind of stick you with you? Do like I can quote certain song lyrics uh, ad nauseum? You know, yeah. like has anything from Hazel's work kind of made it into the, your consciousness like that? Yeah, I guess because I like pattern, and she often talks about the checkered pattern of the window. And, oh, right, and, yeah. And, and, yeah, and it's something about the rhythm of the place. And she used to talk, I guess at that time, maybe there was horses outside because on the sidewalk mm-hmm. you still see the rings where they were there. But the sounds, the sounds of the area and also the, um, the shadows and how the light passes through. Mm-hmm. And that's, I'm always really aware of that and how the, how the light's fragmented from the, the cross patterns. Oh, yeah, that comes mm-hmm. into yeah. the living room, which I think yeah. you and your studio is right next to it. Right. I think that was one room at one point. So, yeah. And I said the book, which is interesting, how that book came into my hands. Because yeah. <laughs> um, um, there was a knock on our door one day, and it was, a, it was actually a writer from Canada. Uh-huh. Terry Allen Carter. Yeah. Yeah. And, they, and usually I, I never let anybody in, but she had a good vibe about her. So I said, come on in. And two of them have actually been qu- become quite good friends of yours. Yeah. But um, because of that, I actually thought, you know, I hadn't really read all of Hazel's things, you know, because I, I read poetry, but not that kind of poetry. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I just... By the chance, it was almost like a voice came into my head and said, take a look online. And that book was just there. I think it was on eBay. And I didn't, I just thought it looked like an original edition. So I got, had it sent to me. Mm-hmm. And inside it, it was actually owned by somebody two doors down talking about their neighbor who was an invalid. Ah. And it's almost like the book came home. Wow. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of a, quite. And is that curtains? Which one is that? Which? Uh... Um, this, this is, is curtains. Yeah. Yeah, but I'll read you what it actually says inside because um, it was actually written. It says to Hattie, um, it says from an invalid neighbor of mine, and um, nineteen twenty one, Christmas nineteen twenty one. Wow! And uh, but I just thought that was kind of nice that they probably lived down the block. Yeah, so. that is so great. Uh, well, maybe that's a great uh, uh, moment to wrap up with uh, Trisha Neal. Thank you so much for joining us. I, yeah, I love you. the conversation that we've been able to have. Right, Thanks. Thank- All right. Thanks to John Witte and thanks to Trish and Neil Langman for talking about Hazel Hall, her house, and the creativity that goes on inside, be it with a needle and thread or pen and paper. Before we close the book on this episode, I'd like to share with you one more Hazel Hall-inspired artwork and artist. That would be Matthew Svoboda, a composer from Portland now living in Eugene who I mentioned in the intro. Two years ago, while on sabbatical from his college teaching job, Svoboda wrote The Room Upstairs, a three-movement musical work for dance that echoes the themes of Hazel Hall's three books. Using cello, violin, and piano, Svoboda captured the sense of longing in Hazel's work, as well as the hand movements, both large and small, that characterized her work as a seamstress. Svoboda told me by phone, quote, I actually came across my first Hazel Hall poem quite by accident many years ago, this poem called Maker of Songs. I was looking for text to write choral music to. Who was this poet? I liked it right away. I looked in the back and found out just a little bit about her, that she actually lived in Portland and spent a lot of time looking out the window. It just intrigued me, he said. But the room upstairs became more than just music. Dance instructor Sarah Nemechek, choreographer Yana Mazaros, poet Terry Ann Carter, and multimedia artist Laura Glazer all got involved in the production, a fusion of chamber music, dance, and biographical storytelling. Svoboda also told me, quote, All these people interested in Hazel Hall were getting connected along the way. That was rich fodder to feel inspired and get different perspective on how Hazel was touching people and how her work can still do that. It was like a little weaving itself, end quote. I then asked Svoboda to tell me about composing work based on Hazel Hall's three books specifically, and he explained, quote, I decided there would be a movement for each of her three books. In the first movement, I chose cello for her voice. It's just a plaintive, elegiac instrument with lots of color and richness. The bowing of the cello, that motion, was also like sewing to me. Her first book, Curtains, she hasn't really been discovered as a poet yet. It's very interior-focused, addressing poems to the wall, the floor, the room upstairs, a lot of her surroundings. It's intimate, so I wanted music that felt that way. Then after her first book gets published to great acclaim, Hazel Hall gets her second book published, Walkers, in which she observes the world outside of her interior space. For that movement, Svoboda said, I wanted more instruments, something lively, 
the roles of the instruments start to switch places and change, and the music is up-tempo. The third book, Cry of Time, is published by Hazel's sister Ruth after her death, and it's more transcendental in nature. She's dealing with big philosophical issues. She's coming to terms with the end of her life. There's an acceptance there. So I wanted to return to a more subdued space, but one where she's been transformed by her experience. In that sense, the music comes back to some of the initial themes, but transformed into an interconnected dance. It's piano, cello, and violin, and they slowly move upwards to symbolize a transcendence. End quote. Listening to Matthew Svoboda talk about the inspirations he found in Hazel Hall's poetry, and listening to The Room Upstairs itself, what I come back to is the idea of transcendence once again, and how it unites all that we've been talking about. Transcendence is an experience that takes you beyond the physical, material world, beyond any kind of limits. Only great art can do that. In a way, these are just rhymes about being lonely in a house in Portland, staring at four walls and out the window to the neighborhood beyond. But the beauty of the language and the spirit behind it indeed transcends. The words that Hazel Hall wrote are being spoken by us today and read by people all around the world. They inspire some, like Matthew, to make music. They no doubt have inspired other poets to find a voice of their own. But most of all, I think Hazel Hall's poems give comfort to all of us who struggle with our own melancholy and our own limitations, myself included. They also allow us to see that, even in moments of darkness, there is always beauty and solace, if you know where to look. With that in mind, I'd like to leave you with one more Hazel Hall poem called Flight from her final collection, Cry of Time. A bird may curve across the sky a feather of dusk, a streak of song, and save a space and a bird to fly. There may be nothing all day long. Flying through a cloud-made place, a bird may tangle east and west, maddened with going, crushing space, with the arrow of its breast. Though never wind nor motion bring it back again from indefinite lands, the thin blue shadow of its wing may cross and cross above your hands. Thanks again, Hazel. And now a quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials, who helps make all of this possible. They also have helped make Portland possible in a way since a lot of the city was built with their products. That cool brick building? It could be Mutual Materials. And that exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store? might be slim brick tile from Mutual Materials. And those outdoor spaces with paved patios and retaining walls and fire pits, those might be made with Mutual Materials too. So if you're looking for masonry or hardscape products, I recommend you check out Mutual Materials. In Search of Portland is brought to you by Mutual Materials and X-Ray FM. Thanks to our producers, Malia Boyles, Ed Curtis, and Chase Bross. Big thank you as well to my musician friends in the band Beauty Pill, and particularly songwriter Chad Clark for graciously allowing us to use one of their songs for our podcast theme. Thanks as well to Maxwell Griffin for providing graphic design, including our podcast logo. And thanks to Nikolai Kruger for creating original artwork to go with each building and episode. That artwork can be found on our website. And in fact, you can find every episode of In Search of Portland at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show so far, you might consider leaving us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts or any of the ilk. And if you've made it this far, thanks again for listening. And please join us next time on In Search of Portland. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>